Spotted horse cannot be killed by the white man's bullet. <laughs> <laughs> Howdy, you're listening to Come and Take It, a talk show about Texas by Texans, where three friends born and raised in the Lone Star State share our views on the history, culture, and just what it means to be Texan. I'm Mike Zolkowski. I'm Sean McIver. And I'm Scott Elfstrom. Soldier, adventurer, knife fighter, land swindler, smuggler, rogue, hero. All of these words were used to describe Jim Bowie, a man as famous and notorious as the deadly knife that bore his name. Words may paint the picture, but do not tell the full story of the man who would one day meet his fate at the Alamo. This week we take a look at the early life of one of Texas' greatest legends, Jim Bowie. But first, who's your favorite Davy Crockett? My favorite is from the 1986 movie 13 Days to Glory. Uh, The Alamo, 13 Days to Glory, and it's Brian Keith played Davy Crockett. Well, I'm a big fan of both Fess Parker and the Duke, but I have to say, in this case, the Duke wins for me. John Wayne. Well, my favorite Davy Crockett of all time is me, when I was probably six or seven years old, and I had my coonskin cap that I bought at Wonder World in San Marcos, Texas, (laughs) and my grandmother had made me a a fake buckskin outfit with all the fringe made out of velour. We need to find a photo of that and put that on our website. I think Scott wins this one. (laughs) Yeah, that's a good one. By 1836, Jim Bowie was one of the most famous men in North America. His fame, and indeed infamy, spread as wide as the popularity of the famous knife that he wielded. After the events of the Texas Revolution, his legend only grew greater. As with any legendary figure of the early days of America, it is difficult to separate the facts from the fiction. As we tell the story of Jim Bowie, we'll try to see the man while examining the legend to gain a greater understanding of this remarkable character. James Bowie was the sixth of eight children born to Reason Bowie and his wife, Elvie. Okay, in keeping with the rest of his life, the details of James Bowie's birth are somewhat disputed. His oldest brother, John, said that he was born on April 10, 1796, in Logan County, Kentucky. Other sources put his birthday at March 10th in other parts of Kentucky, in Tennessee, South Carolina, or in Georgia. Now, this isn't uncommon for the time. Reason was a rambling sort who moved frequently in search of land and opportunity. And finding records from that time is always difficult, is doubly so because large families, especially Scots and Irish ones, tended to use the same names across generations. Young Jim was named after one grandfather, and his brothers John, Reason, David, and Stephen were all named after uncles. Yes, Jim Bowie did have a brother named David Bowie. He also had three older sisters, Sarah, Martha, and Mary. Reason and Elvie met during the American Revolution when Reason was wounded and Elvie nursed him back to health. By 1800, Reason was a fairly prosperous farmer who owned eight slaves, 11 head of cattle, seven horses, and one stud horse. Like most men in the West at the time, he was involved in land speculation alongside his brothers. Reason preferred solitude and the wild frontier to settlement. It was said that as soon as Reason saw the smoke of a neighbor's chimney, he knew it was time to move. His son John said that he fled the refinements of civilization and retired to wilder regions where he could enjoy those sports and stirring adventures peculiar to a frontier life. In 1800, he moved his family into Missouri, where he and his brothers swore allegiance to the Spanish crown, since Spain still owned the land west of the Mississippi at the time. Two years later, and now French citizens, thanks to politics back in Europe, 
the Bowies moved south and today what is Catahoula Parish, Louisiana. They would move again in 1809 to Bayou Techie in Vermilion Parish, and finally in 1812 to Opelousas, where Reason built the largest plantation of the time in Louisiana. By this time, of course, the Bowies were once again American, thanks to the Louisiana Purchase of 1804. The Bowie children grew up wild and free in the frontier, learning all the survival skills necessary to exist in the untamed lands of the West. Hunting, tracking, fishing, trapping, horses, and farming. All the children could read and write and got a basic education from their mother. Jim and his brother Reason were very bright boys who also learned to read and write in Spanish and French. The boys, of course, were rambunctious and wild, and Jim's brothers and friends remembered him as being particularly fearless. Later stories of him roping and riding alligators are scoffed at today, but they're probably not far off from the truth. Alligator riding is still actually a thing in South Louisiana today. In 1814, during the War of 1812, the Louisiana militia was mustered by General Andrew Jackson to fight off a British invasion of New Orleans. Jim and Reason joined up, hoping to see action, but they got to New Orleans too late to fight the British. After the war, they settled in Rapides Parish and got involved in the lumber business, cutting log planks and sending them down the river to New Orleans. By this time, Jim was a young man. He was described as a stout and raw-boned fellow, about six feet tall and 180 pounds, a fairly big man for his time. He was a solemn but friendly fellow and had a vicious temper that brooked no insult. It was said that Bowie never forgot a friend or forgave an enemy. Like his father, as well as his brother Reason, Jim wasn't one to be tied down. He idolized his older brother, who people called a perfect rowdy, but who also had a great mind for business. At the age of 15, Jim's brother Reason made the first land purchase in Louisiana that brought the whole family south from Missouri. Reason was constantly in search of the next deal, and Jim was brokenhearted when he left home to go to Texas in 1812 as part of the Gutierrez-McGee expedition, hoping to take advantage of the vast lands available. Fortunately, he left the expedition before it met its terrible fate at the Battle of Medina. When Reason returned, the brothers became inseparable partners for the next several years. The brothers would find themselves in Texas shortly, and in the form of an unlikely alliance with the pirate Jean Lafitte. It's unknown how the Bowie brothers came to meet the great pirate Lafitte, but most sources believe that Reason first met him sometime around 1818. Lafitte was briefly on the side of the law when he aided Andrew Jackson during the Battle of New Orleans. But he was back to his old pirate ways, although he only preyed on Spanish shipping in support of Mexican and South American independence movements. He was ejected from his old base at Barataria in Louisiana, and now he was based out of Galveston Island in Texas. Lafitte and the Bowie brothers soon came up with a unique and highly questionable scam, which made both of them very wealthy. They figured out a loophole to get around the ban on the importation of slaves into the U.S. The scheme worked like this. While the trade of slaves into the U.S. was illegal, it wasn't illegal between Spanish possessions and the Caribbean. Lafitte would attack and seize Spanish slave ships, bringing the slaves to Galveston Island. Reason and Jim would quietly take possession of these slaves, enter Louisiana, find the nearest customs house, and turn the slaves over to the government officials. Okay. Yeah, this is how it works, and it gets kind of strange, and you got to follow along with it. At the time, Louisiana dealt with slave smuggling not by freeing the slaves, but by selling them back to the public. That sounds odd. Yeah. That was how they did it. Uh, informants who came forward with information about a smuggler or who turned over contraband seized from a smuggler received half of the slave's value at auction. That was their reward. 
Now, so what the Bowie's and Lafitte did was whichever brother brought in the slaves would tell the officials, we were only minding our own business, and then we came across somebody trying to smuggle these slaves. Uh, they got away, but we got their cargo. Here you go. And so the slaves would be put up for auction, and surprise, surprise, the winner would always be the other brother. They could always outbid anybody else because they knew they were going to get half their money back right away. And so they then legally owned the slaves, and then they could turn around and sell them in New Orleans or St. Louis or Mississippi, where there was a higher demand for them, therefore got them a higher price. This added to their purse, and so in the end, they would just split the money with John Lafitte. I'd say this sounds like some fine, upstanding young men. Yeah. <laughs> it's a pretty wild scheme. The scheme, while reprehensible on all parts, netted the buoys a tidy sum of money over the course of about a year. They stopped bootlegging slaves after they'd made about $65,000, which is approximately $1 million in today's money. Like many people of the day, they invested the money into land. Reason generally handled the business interests of the brothers, and not long afterwards, in 1821, their father died. Jim's wandering days were still in him, though. He would return to Texas in 1819 with another filibustering expedition led by Dr. James Long. They captured Nacogdoches, but were driven out by the Spanish fairly quickly. He didn't return with Long in either of his other expeditions, but he may have actually introduced Dr. Long to Jean Lafitte. Through the 1820s, Jim never settled down much. He allegedly still dabbled in the slave trade, but he also participated in trading missions up and down the Mississippi, the Missouri, and the Red Rivers. He even served as a state representative in 1826 for Catahoula Parish. He continued to partner with Reason and his brothers in buying and developing land, which was then known as land speculation. Were they also surveyors? <laughs> they probably were. While their slave scheme fueled their initial capital, the next scheme would bring a new level of notoriety to the Bowie brothers. The territory that was part of the Louisiana Purchase had a long and complex history. Uh, we've talked about it in other episodes that the Spanish land grants system uh, was problematic at best, and they didn't do a great job of keeping records. There was a lot of confusion over who owned what land and who had authority over it and impresarios coming in and thinking they owned stuff, but there was already people living there. It was confusing. Um, you can add to that confusion the period from before the 1750s when France had owned the territory, and you throw in four more years from 1800 to 1804 when France had control but Spain had possession of the territory, and you can imagine there's even more problems. The U.S. promised, after they made the Louisiana Purchase, to honor all Spanish and French claims held in that territory, and over the next 20 years, they tried to sort all those out. In 1824, Congress authorized the superior courts in those states that were carved out of the Louisiana Purchase to hear suits from anyone who said they'd been overlooked. In 1827, 126 people came forward to the Arkansas Superior Court to confirm their purchases of unsettled land that were originally owned by Spanish citizens. The unusual thing was that all of these titles were bought from a single source, Jim and Reason Bowie. The initial trial certified all of these titles, but the U.S. attorney suspected fraud and appealed. The Superior Court soon determined that not only were all of the titles forgeries, but that the witnesses who'd verified these titles in the first case had all been bribed. The case made it all the way to the Supreme Court of the United States, which threw out all of the claims. Bowie's name was never on any of the court documents, so he was not accountable for the fraud which made him and his brothers tens of thousands of dollars. Everyone in Arkansas, however, knew what he was up to, so he had to return to Louisiana. 
Everyone in Arkansas knew that Jim and Reason Bowie were selling false land claims, so he had to return to Louisiana. I think I'd get out of town. Right, and he had several hundred thousand acres still of land in his that he claimed it was his, that he had forged <laughs> documents. It wasn't for the land scheme, though, that Jim Bowie became most known. A big man with a big reputation is going to make enemies, and Jim made one in Norris Wright, the sheriff of Rapides Parish. Louisiana politics have always been rough, and Bowie was right in the middle of it at the time. His friend and relative Samuel Wells ran against Wright for sheriff, and he won. Now, Wright took this personally, and he began telling everyone how crooked and rotten Wells was, especially for running around with a known swindler like Jim Bowie, so he was slandering him all over town. Now, Wright was also the local banker, and he knew that Bowie was deeply in debt, like most men of the day, for his land deals. His dislike of Bowie led him to reject another loan request from the Bowie brothers at his bank. In late 1826, it all came to a head when Wells and Reason let Jim know about the slander that Wright had been spreading, and Jim Bowie went to the local saloon to confront Wright. When Bowie burst into the saloon, Wright pulled his pistol and fired. Bowie, only armed with a small pocket knife, grabbed a chair, which deflected the bullet. Bowie went to swing the chair at Wright, and Wright fired again, striking Bowie in the chest. Amazingly, Bowie dropped the chair, but didn't fall. He knocked Wright down to the ground and pinned him down as he tried to pull out his pocket knife. Wright's friends pulled Bowie off, but he wasn't done fighting. He bit down on Wright's hand so forcefully that he lost a tooth when Wright's friends dragged him away. By this time, Wright's friends had arrived and carried him out of the fight. Bowie was still trying to get at him. At the time, people said he would have killed Wright with his bare hands if he could have. His friends took him away to treat his wounds. Wright and his friends came looking for Jim later, but assumed he was dead due to all the blood they found in his hotel room. Jim Bowie was made of sterner stuff. The bullet to his chest had passed through without serious damage, and doctors stopped the bleeding. In only a few days, he was back on his feet and ready for more action. One thing he knew, he was done with folding pocket knives. He needed something that was always open, small enough to be used in close quarters, but big enough to handle any situation. And this is the legendary birth of the knife that forever would be linked with the name Bowie. The most common story is that he told Reason about his idea for this knife, which he described as a butcher knife, and Reason had one made for him. Friend of the show, Stephen Phelps, has described this knife in an article he wrote for Cowboys and Indians magazine. Quote, Start with the shape of a common Spanish hunting knife between 9 and 10 inches long and 1 and a half inches wide. Hone a double edge to the blade and a sharply beveled clip point that curves the point down below the spine. At some point, Bowie also added a guarded hilt to protect his hand. He took to wearing it at all times in a cut-down sword scabbard. He'd never be caught unarmed again. Wright figured that it was better not to talk bad about or mess with Bowie. I mean, he was practically unkillable. However, more and more people joined the feud, and it eventually needed to get settled. And they settled this with a duel. Somehow, Wells ended up challenging a gentleman named Dr. Thomas Maddox to a duel. Maddox had somehow wound up on Norris's side. They agreed to meet at a sandbar on the Mississippi River outside of Natchez on September 19, 1827. Between seconds, surgeons, attendants, and friends, there were around 16 people there. Among those on Maddox's side was Norris Wright, Colonel Robert Crane, and Carrie and Alfred Blanchard. Wells' party included Major Alfred McWhorter, General Samuel Cunney, and, of course, Jim Bowie. They'd all quarreled at some point or another during the feud, so tension was high. This wasn't intended to be a brawl, though. 
two gentlemen were supposed to settle their issue and either move on or die. Their first shots missed. They agreed to a second shot, which also missed. Dr. Maddox, years later, said at that point, Honor was satisfied and Wells, quote, withdrew his offensive language. They shook hands, and that should have been the end of it. Most reports seem to indicate that General Cunney, who had heat with Colonel Crane, wasn't satisfied with the result. He walked towards Crane and called out, Colonel Crane, this is a good time to settle our difficulty. Before anyone realized what was happening, the two parties were shouting at each other and drawing their pistols, and shots were fired. Crane shot at Cunney but missed, hitting Bowie in the hip instead, and knocked him down. Crane fired at Cunney again, who fired back simultaneously. Both were wounded, but Cunney's wounds were fatal. Bowie was back on his feet at this point and pulled his wicked knife. He charged at Crane, who hit Bowie over the head with his now empty pistol so hard that it broke. Bowie again went down to his knees. Others quickly joined the fight. Norris Wright and the Blanchard brothers went after Bowie, who was considered to be the most dangerous man in the fight. Norris shot at Bowie and missed. He drew his sword cane, which is a thin blade concealed inside a walking stick, and stabbed Bowie in the chest. It stuck, but the blade was deflected by his sternum. Bowie reached up, grabbed Norris's shirt, and stabbed him through the neck with his knife, killing Norris instantly. Bowie stood up, the sword still in his chest, and was shot again, this time by one of the Blanchard brothers, and stabbed again by someone else. He wasn't knocked down, though, and pulled the sword from his chest. He was shot yet again in the arm, but slashed at Alfred Blanchard, cutting off part of his forearm. Carey fired at him again, but was wounded by Major McWhorter. As the Blanchard brothers fled, the fight quickly came to an end. Amazingly, the fight took less than 10 minutes. Dr. Maddox later said that he left the fight to go to his horse to get his shotgun. When he returned, Wells stopped him and said, Doctor, for God's sake, don't do any further damage, for it is all over. Two men, Cunny and Norris, were dead. Both Blanchard brothers were wounded and running for their lives. Men from both sides, including the wounded Colonel Crane, were helping carry Jim Bowie, shot three times, clubbed with a pistol, and stabbed in the chest twice off the sandbar. Reportedly, Bowie thanked Crane for helping him, saying, Colonel Crane, I do not think under the circumstances you ought to have shot me. Dr. Maddox said that a few years later, before he went to Texas, Bowie invited Crane to meet with him in New Orleans, and they departed great friends. Wow. News quickly spread of the remarkable sandbar fight, the amazing prowess of Jim Bowie, and, most importantly, his fantastic knife. Soon everyone was making and carrying copies of the blade, as far away as the East Coast and even England. Bowie knife schools sprang up in St. Louis, New Orleans, and Chicago to teach young men to fight like Jim Bowie. Of course, Jim and Reason didn't benefit much from this. Jim himself was gravely wounded and doctors didn't think he'd survive, but he eventually recovered from his wounds. The sandbar fight was both the high and low point of his life in Louisiana. He soon became one of the most famous men in the area, but his life began to fall apart. This is about the time that the land claims case in Arkansas popped up and virtually wiped out his holdings in the area. Plus, it made it difficult for him to make any further deals thanks to the notoriety. Nobody's going to want to buy land from a known swindler. His debts were getting out of control, and by 1831, he would default on all of his loans. 1829 also saw personal tragedy strike Bowie. He was engaged to Sam Wells' sister, Cecilia, but she died of pneumonia two weeks before their wedding in September 1829. Cecilia would be his last tie to Louisiana. After her death, he plunged wholeheartedly into the next phase of his life. Jim Bowie was going to Texas to find his destiny and his fortune. 
but little did he know just what destiny had in store. Man. That is one tough... Yeah, <laughs> one tough hombre. One tough hombre. I mean, we're all big movie fans here, and you know, I can't help but think of the great scene from The Quick and the Dead when, you know, spotted horse cannot be killed by the white man's bullet. And, <laughs> and he's shot several times before he eventually dies, but... I can't imagine getting stabbed once in the chest and getting up much less twice. And, he's and in, getting shot three times. And getting shot three times and clubbed over the head. And that's just the, the one incident. And then the incident <laughs> in the bar that sparked that's, the that's, whole... That's that just the one that's well reported. And and he was involved in many other fights and and brawls and feuds and... Right. They didn't have Neosporin or really yeah. antibiotics back then either. <laughs> I'm like, how do you how do you recover from these grievous wounds in a time, in this kind of time? I'm pretty sure that he was a mutant. Yeah, he might have been Wolverine. Yeah, he is. That's uh, what I'm he, thinking. Yeah, I think we'll have to get Hugh Jim Jackman. Jim Bowie, also known as Logan. Yeah. Well, I get, so there's that... The, the second half of this story we talked about right here, just physically so impressive mm-hmm. of, I mean, he's, he's the Jim Thorpe of knife fighting. Like, you know, he's just, he's, he's incredibly yeah. capable in, in all aspects of fighting. Yes. And the interesting thing, and what's fascinating about the, the sandbar fight is you think you read the description of it. You think that's, that's exaggerated. That's some, that's something out of a pulp novel, like, you know, in the unforgiven, when the guy's talking about the Duke of death and, uh, you know all the nope, all the gunfights and all that kind all of all real. It, it's all this real. is these are people. Doctor Maddox had no reason to embellish Jim Bowie's legend. He was on the other side, yeah. And he reported it. You know this is what happened. Everybody agreed this all happened. So his his story in this is extraordinary because it's real. It's absolutely a true historical thing that happened. Yeah, and you know we're talking about all of these amazing physical and. You know, all of the stuff that Jim Bowie did that we know from the what we can thought were tall tales, but it's really history. But, you know, there's also a lot in here about Jim Bowie that's not so awesome. That's <laughs> well, not attractive um, I mean, the whole Let's, slave scam, I mean, it's just, it's pretty repugnant. It's bad you know? enough to be a slave trader. <laughs> now you're you're actually like... Defrauding well, the well, government. I was, I was going to I was going to put it a different way. Oh, I was okay. going to say, it's bad enough to be a criminal, but <laughs> yeah. to also be a slave trader... You right. know, that's, right. that makes it worse. Well, there's this notion... It's one thing to rip off the frontier government. It's another thing to do it in a morally repugnant way. Yeah. Well, in talking about these characters, and it's partially because of our age and our love of pop culture, you, you tend to put them into certain character archetypes. So we go, oh, Santa Ana, he's the Darth Vader of Texas. Mm-hmm. And Jim Bowie, you know, he's kind of the Han Solo. He's this lovable smuggler. Except... He's smuggling human chattel, <laughs> and it's yeah. There's a very dark side to this of like you know oh my gosh like we're talking about yeah earning a huge fortune which you then parlay into fake land grants and and with the slave smuggling we're not talking about this is something we're looking back through the lens of history and yeah, applying our own values. The, the Constitution, which was written in the 1780s, they, they wrote into the Constitution a projected end of the international slave trade, of the importation of slaves. So this was something that society agreed was a moral wrong that needed to stop. It needed to end. And Bowie took advantage of a loophole in local laws to get around that because there was a, there was a business demand for it. But still, this is not something that we're saying, oh, you know, slavery, we agree, slavery was wrong. They then did not agree that slavery was wrong, but the the slave trade they 
people agreed it was wrong, and he still broke that law. Well, and and so, then, like you said, so we get into the next phase of his life, which was now he said now instead of you know swindling instead of swindling the government with with illegal slave importing, and uh, and forming a partnership with one of the greatest pirates of all time, now I'm going to go and I'm going to people. I'm yeah, going well, to sell people titles to land that I don't own. Yeah. He well, probably, he made a lot of money doing it. And he yeah. just, and then he lost it all. Then he lost it all, so... Well, and then uh, the time... So we talk about that lots of people invested in, in land speculation. Lots of people put money in land. And, and at the time, the, the big the phrase was, you were, you were land poor. So now we say we're house poor, but you were land poor. You leveraged all of everything that you owned into continually buying more land because land... Was the that was the thing everybody agreed? Have land, own land. So you went up to your and past your eyeballs in debt to buy this land. Well, when Bowie couldn't get any more debt to buy land, he just paid a fellow to make some titles, and then they went and sold those titles to people. So you know this was a a, a, a kind of a point I think we talked about earlier this week um, offline. We t- we just did an episode on Santa Ana, and we talked about Santa Ana. We said, you know, gosh, if this guy had only died even earlier, as late, even as late as San Jacinto, if he'd have died, then he'd have been he'd be remembered as a hero in history, right? And because of the events of his second half of his life, but with Jim Bowie, it's like if he'd have had a heart attack, or if he'd have died on the sandbar, if he'd have got some yeah. kind of something happened, wiped him out, he would just have been this scoundrel yeah like this whole chapter leading up to his life in texas is the is is reprehensible on paper parts of it are reprehensible right. on paper and the guy's just a you know he's just a brawler like he's just a, a hot-headed brawler who has no qualms about you know criminal activities and yet he's revered and taught as as a hero of texas there's lots of schools named after counties him. and towns a county yeah. and a town too. It's it's back to that. We're preparing that redemption story to come to fruition in Texas. Oh no! I, I I'm I'm don't worry, folks. It gets better next week. Right. And and I think the thing about Jim Bowie. So we're, we're going to talk later in other episodes, and and a lot of people know sort of the story of Davy Crockett. That that the stories about Davy Crockett are largely greater or more embellished than the actual life of Davy Crockett. And so it's hard to tell uh, what the real life of Davy Crockett was because there's so many stories. With Sam Houston, probably there's more realistic, more true story about Sam Houston than there is legend because he was a public figure and historical figure. Jim Bowie really is in the middle because there, after the Alamo, there was a lot of stories told about him and embellishment of his legend. But a lot of these things really happened. A lot of the the stories about him, like the sandbar fight and like the fight with Norris in the bar, really occurred. And some of the things that happened to him in Texas really occurred. Well, I think I like about Jim Bowie, and just in this half of the story, is the fact that, you know, he was willing to kill every man on that <laughs> island that stood against him. But yet, shortly thereafter, like, let's have a drink. Right. Well, Norris was the one he really had heat with, and he really had a problem with, and he killed him. He stuck that knife through his throat. Um, but they, 
yeah, they, they, it is a different world and a different mentality. He didn't come to that island to have this big brawl. Nobody, and as a matter of fact, they wanted to have it at this island, so they wouldn't. They wouldn't have this duel, so they wouldn't have a free for all brawl because well, they could yeah. have had it anywhere. The sandbar fight takes place in Mississippi. This is just a fun footnote. Right. It was originally intended to happen on in the Sabine River. Yeah. But then they rescheduled and moved it to the Mississippi River. Right. And they were worried. So Maddox was worried that if they went over to the Sabine, there was the, at the time the land just over the border from Louisiana into Texas was kind of a no man's land. Right. Lawless. And they were worried that there would be other people involved. They might get, well, Maddox's side was where they'd get Shanghai'd and, and a, an ambush or something. So they wanted to go further into the U.S. rather than completely out of the U.S. So my, it could have happened in Texas. That's so my the, question, and I'm not fully versed on the history, is was dueling still legal at the time? It was illegal, but I think they there were parts of the country where it was not as enforced. Right, so it so was kind of in that gray area. It was in that gray area. Um, the other thing was that it's kind of like I think there was a consideration that was kind of like gambling is today if it's on the river or the Mississippi River or in the water. <laughs> okay, yeah, it's was... it's it's legal. It's like international territory. Yeah, I would say that's the other reason to go out and do it on a sandbar. Is it's like right. okay, this is neutral territory at least in practice, if not by the letter of the law. Yeah. So it was out of the jurisdiction of where they lived. That right. was the main thing. Yeah. Last thing I'd like to bring up today: the cotton gin. The steam engine, the light bulb. These are all great inventions that changed the world. Some of these things changed the world and then they've sort of gone away. You can walk into any Walmart in North America or any academy or whatever hunting, fishing store. Or even fries. Or even, and you can buy a Bowie knife. Yeah. The Bowie knife is a timeless tool. Like, uh, uh, like it's just something we still haven't used. And even, uh, there's a lot of, a large number of military-grade knives that are used saying, by soldiers in the field. Isn't the uh, the Marine K-Bar? Isn't uh-huh. it technically K-bar a Bowie knife? It's technically yes. a Bowie knife. Yeah. So, you, you know, it, it doesn't have to have a compass in it to be considered a Bowie knife. <laughs> uh, the first ones didn't. Yeah. But, but I, you know, we it started out just as, oh, I'm going to, I just need a butcher knife that yeah. I can carry. Like, that's, the, you know, and but it evolved into this very elegant blade. And we kind of talked about the idea with, did you really invent it, or did it just sort of evolve, and he kept changing and tweaking this knife? But, you know, Edison went through hundreds of prototype mm-hmm. light bulbs to figure out the right materials and the right feel, and I think that it's such a natural, evolved design of a weapon. Right. And it's an, it's it's interesting that it has survived to this day, because it's such a practical, you know, such a practical knife in terms yeah. of... You can use it for hunting. You can use it for self-defense. You can use it, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a useful tool that's persisted. And I think that's just such an interesting legacy in terms of, a, of an invention. Yeah, and that's the most probably controversial or disputed thing about Bowie is the origin of the knife. Some people claim it was a knife maker in Arkansas. Some people claim it evolved you know, from old Scottish designs or whatever. But mm. like you said, the original thing was that clasp knife, he couldn't get it open in that first fight. And he said, I've got to carry something. I don't want to carry a sword, but I've got to carry something that that I can get to quickly and I can kill someone with. So whether or not he actually invented it, right. he, and at least in popular history, 
has been credited with popularizing it. Exactly. And it bears his name for that fact. He's at, yeah. least, that, he's at least done that with it. Yeah, exactly. And that's that's his legacy. And it was it was his infamy at the time, too, because people were using it to kill people with. And attributed to him a lot more damage and death than he actually probably did. I don't know. It seems like he was he did a lot of damage and death he on did, his own. He, he did, did just fine in the damage and death category. I just I just the the idea of him like standing up what must have been going through their mind him standing up with two bullets in him and a sword sticking out of his chest like oh crap. <laughs> well, I just the first fight in the bar it's like yeah. oh he he picked up a chair and then he deflected a bullet with a chair and I was you read that and you go I mean is this guy Superman? I mean, like, <laughs> he's deflecting bullets. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. I think it's also remarkable that, like, his great-great-great-grandson went on to be one of the greatest musicians and rock stars <laughs> that we know. Yeah. And so to our friends in England, uh, Bowie is a appropriate tran- uh, pronunciation of the name, especially more of the, the Scottish and Irish origin of the name. But David Bowie... The singer did indeed take his name from the 1950s television show about Jim Bowie, uh, but he used the English or the Scottish version of the. Of right. the well, they pronounce the it wrong over there. We still oh, think you're so great guys, we, so we, they're not related. Then. They're not related. No, oh. but we we call it Bowie. If you go to Bowie, Texas, or you go to Bowie County, or, or you, you send your kids to Bowie Elementary, Bowie Elementary School, or you take your kids and enroll them in a Bowie knife fighting school. Oh, yeah, exactly. Or you name your child Bowie. Those, it's Bowie. Bowie, Bowie, Bowie. I, listen, I'm, I'm done with all of this MMA and Krav Maga and all these other schools. <laughs> I want to bring back the knife fighting school. That's, That's the Bowie knife fighting school. That is the dojo for me. That wraps things up for today. You can find notes and links from today's show at brainstable.com. We'd love to hear from you. So like and share us on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at Texas Podcast or go to brainstable.com and leave us some feedback. You can also find our show and many other great history podcasts at historypodcasters.com. You can follow us individually too. I'm on Twitter at Mr. Java. I'm Max Sean with two N's. And I'm Scotticus. If you like the show, tell your friends and please leave a review on iTunes. It really helps us out and helps us find new listeners just like you. We hope you'll join us next time and remember that even if you aren't from Texas, Texas Texas wants you anyway. anyway.